the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God has been addressing the nation of Israel before they enter to conquer the Promised Land. God speaking through Moses reminded the people that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They were to not forget God's civil and ceremonial laws when dwelling in the land. Israel was to be a special and unique group of people, different from the rest of the nations. Now, God will address the care of people that might be looked over or completely forgotten once in the land. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 1. You know, last week, Moses covered how cities of refuge and future wars were to function once Israel conquered the land. And so we dealt with how city officials should handle cases of manslaughter, murder, and then, of course, siege warfare. But in this chapter, we're going to address some specific situations that might arise in those instances. And in looking at these laws, we're going to see just how much God values every single life. And that his heart is to protect those who cannot defend themselves. Whether it's the victim of a crime or an undesired wife or the parent of an ungrateful child, no person's struggles are overlooked by God because every single person is important to him. So chapter 21, we begin in verse 1, and we're going to talk about the law for an unknown murder. He says, now if one be found slain in the land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who has slain him, then your elders and your judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next or nearest unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, they shall take a heifer which has not been wrought with and which has not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and they shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for them the Lord your God has chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. Here we find the situation is that someone stumbles across a body, and it's not just someone who dies of natural causes, but they've been slain. They've been struck dead is what that word slain means. And when this happens, it can't just be ignored because the perpetrator is unknown. Innocent blood has been shed and something must be done. Now you might be thinking, but why? I mean, it's not like they can punish anybody, you know, and especially when you read through this, you go, what did the cow do? Why does something must be done? Well, turn over to Proverbs chapter six with me, because I think we don't understand just how much the shedding of innocent blood bothers the Lord. We're going to look at verses 16 through 19. Now realize, as I read through this, there are six other sermons here. I'm just giving you one tonight. But there are six other sermons based on all the things that God says here. Each one of these are equally important to God. But this is why the shedding of innocent blood is so important to him. 
In verse 16 of Proverbs 6, it says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. When we talk about that word hate, that's very interesting, because in the Old Testament, there's another word for hate. That means to love less. We're going to cover it later in this chapter when it talks about the wife who is hated. It doesn't mean the guy hates his wife. It means he loves her less than his other wife. Again, that's a whole different situation. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But that's usually how that word hate is used in the Old Testament. That's the most common word for hate in the Old Testament. Testament is just to love less. So like when it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God didn't hate Esau. There's a reason why he loved him less or he had less affection for him. And again, that's a whole other Bible study. But that's not a very strong word, obviously, when we think of hatred. This word here is a different word and it's the strong word. It means to be opposed to something, to be the enemy of something, to treat something as odious to yourself. When you see something, you just go, oh, that's disgusting. That's what this word means. So these six things does the Lord hate. They are odious to him. They're disgusting to him. He is opposed to them. He is the enemy of these things. Seven, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Abomination, again, it just means something that God hates. It's something detestable, something that should never be on the earth. Interesting, the first thing he lists is a proud look. God puts a proud look on the same level as shedding innocent blood. He says, secondly, a lying tongue. And then thirdly here, hands that shed innocent blood. Fourthly, a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Fifthly, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Sixthly, a false witness that speaks lies. And lastly, he that sows discord among brethren. God equally hates, is opposed to, is the enemy of, disgusts him these seven things. And on there, of course, you see the shedding of innocent blood. The shedding of innocent blood is disgusting to God, detestable to God. Something that never should occur is because no person is a mistake or an afterthought to him. No person is. Every single life is valuable to him. Every single person is loved by him. So for Israel to see a life and go, well, we've done our research, we've investigated, we can't find the perpetrator and just go, well, that happens sometimes and not do anything else about it shows they do not have the same feeling about the shedding of innocent blood that God has. And that is something that is unacceptable to God by his people. He is not okay with that. He is not okay when we justify a proud look. He is not okay when we ignore a lying tongue. He's not okay with when we ignore hearts that devise wicked imaginations or false witnesses or sowing discord among brethren. And he is certainly not okay when there are hands shedding innocent blood and we say nothing, do nothing, and think nothing of it. He is not okay with that. And so Here, he provides a legal remedy for the nation when this happens. It's interesting. The Bible says that when blood is shed, that it cries out to God for justice. I don't understand how that works. I don't know how it works at the DNA level. I don't know if God hears something that none of us can hear. I realize that we are discovering new things every day. It wouldn't surprise me if something like that was the case, right? There's already many sounds out there that the human ear can't hear. But whether it's just metaphorical or whatever, that blood is crying out for justice and God can't just ignore it. God who is holy and perfect and righteous and loves every single person immensely cannot ignore that. So we cannot ignore it either. And so if they didn't do something about it, God would have to do something about it. And so he gives them a legal remedy here for them to do something to show that they did everything in their power, that it's very important to them, that this person was valuable to them, and the loss of the family who experienced it, that it matters to them 
as well. And so he says to them, when that happens, verse 2, then your elders and your judges shall come forth. Now these are the groups of people who were responsible for the social and legal matters in the nation. The elders handled the the social affairs of a city or a town or a village. The judges were the ones who handled the the legal matters in a town, a city, or a village. And they need to come out, and they're going to measure from where this body was found unto all the cities which are nearby. And the city that's closest to the slain body, their leadership is the one that needs to deal with this. Because that's likely where the perpetrator was from, and they need to be the ones that are responsible for this. So it shall be, verse 3, that the city which is nearest unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, they're going to take a heifer, that's a female cow, which has not been wrought with, no, you haven't used it for any work, and which has not drawn in the yokes, you haven't used it to plow the field. Then the elders of that city, they will bring down that heifer unto a rough valley. The word there, rough, it's a horrible translation. It just means a valley that always filled with running water. In Israel, because it's very arid over there, they have these things called wadis. And they are valleys that will have in the rainy seasons, because it it just, it's very hilly, the water comes just shooting down through there. It says it can't be one of those. It needs to be a place where there's a, a consistent stream, a consistent brook. There needs to be of some type of running water that's always there. And you'll come down there, and and no one's farming that area, and there you will, it says, strike off the heifer's neck. It just means you'll break the heifer's neck there in the valley. This type of animal who had never served before, therefore would be be a mature animal, not a baby animal, it would be a mature animal, but it would be one that would have provided many years of service because none of its life force, its energy, its, it, and its strength would have been diminished by work yet. So it would have been of great value to that city. Paying this price was evidence that they valued human life more than personal gain and that their loyalty to God's law was greater than any of their personal pursuits. It was the responsible thing to do. It was a price worth paying because a life had been lost. A life had been taken. I think this is very interesting because again, some people read this and they go, what about the cow, man? I mean, what did the cow do? God loves all of his creation. And Bible actually says that in the book of Revelation, he's going to destroy those who have destroyed the earth. And I do think that there is going to be parts of, of things that we've done. The Lord holds us responsible for, holds this world responsible for what they've done to his creation. The Bible says that there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground without God being there. It doesn't say without him knowing it. It means without God, without the Father. He's close to them. But can I tell you an important truth? God values human beings more than he values animals. I'm sorry for your pets, but he values human beings more than he values animals. All right? We are the crowning jewel of his creation. He did not give them the same essence that we have. Kids come to me all the time. Any kids in here? All right, good. I can say it. Is my pet Fluffy going to be in heaven? And of course, what I tell them? No, they don't have souls. Now, to you, those of you out there, I'm like, what? <laughs> there is a difference between a human being and an animal, okay? They do not have a part of them that fellowships with God. It doesn't mean they can't experience God. It doesn't mean they don't have emotions, a personality, intellect, anything like that. But they are not the same as a human being, okay? And as a result, some people ask me and they say, well, will every individual animal be in heaven? My answer biblically would have to be no. And I realize that may be disappointing to some of you. I may be wrong. The Bible doesn't come out and say, fluffy will not be in heaven, all right? But from what we see in the scripture about how animals are different than human beings and why God values human beings higher than animals in his creation or plant life for that matter, they're all alive, why he values us at a greater level, why animals can be food, but people can't be food, why God's okay with that is because they have a different makeup than a human being does. We are a trichotomy made in the image of God. An animal is not. Again, they may have great personality. They may be a loyal and faithful, wonderful friend. All those things may be true, but they do not have the same makeup as a human being. Nobody's left yet, and maybe I'm okay. 
But the idea here is that God does value people higher than animals. That's why the animal would be the one to pay the price since they couldn't find a perpetrator. They would be, in a sense, the atonement or the covering for the fact that the perpetrator was still going free. And once the leaders, city leaders had paid this price, which also showed how much they detested the shedding of innocent blood, that they would do this thing, then the priests were called in to confirm their innocence and integrity in the matter. Verse 5. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near for them the Lord your God has chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. The court of appeal, as we read in an earlier chapter in Deuteronomy, was the priests. They all said a judge, just one judge, would be a bunch of priests, a bunch of Levites, and one judge would be on this court of appeals. And as the court of appeals, the priests would have the final word on any legal controversies. So if they come down, once the city leaders have shown that they're serious about this, and if they grill the city leaders, and they determine that there's no conspiracy by the city in this person's death, and that the city leaders have done everything possible to try try to apprehend and uncover the criminal, then the priest will say, well, then God will be satisfied by what you've done and the nation won't be judged because innocent blood has been shed and the perpetrator has not been dealt with. Now, the city leaders, therefore, must proclaim their innocence to the priest and then request that God cover this horrible deed because they've handled it as best they could. And I love that because there are situations where we come and we look and we go, I, I trusted the Lord and I, I did the best I could, but I can't control everything. I can't tr- control this other person, right? I can't control this and that. You need to be encouraged in that situation that God's not frustrated with you. I have people come to me all the time and say, I, I just, I could have done more. And I'll ask them, I say, what more could have you done? Were you faithful and obedient to the Lord? Well, I tried. Yeah, I think I was. And you know, what did you do? What else could have you done? What did what was the Lord asking you to do? Well, nothing else. Well, then don't condemn yourself and don't let the enemy condemn you. The Lord knows our frame that we're simply dust. He knows we're not him. He knows that we have very little strength. I love what it says in the, so the church of Philadelphia. You know, he says to him, he has nothing bad to say to him, but he doesn't necessarily say they're these great warriors of faith. He goes, for you have a little strength. <laughs> and I love that because it shows for me, that's what the Lord's looking for. He knows our frame that we're dust. He just wants us to give our best to him and commit the rest to him. And Pastor Chuck used to say that all the time. He said, do your best and commit the rest because that's all you can do. And so when they've proven that that's the case, they've handled it as best they could, then the priest would take that request to God since the people couldn't approach the Lord's presence themselves. So they would then take the request to God for forgiveness and mercy. And the Lord would then hear. And so the, the proclamation though and the prayer do have some interesting components to it. So look at verse six. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man, they shall wash their hands over the heifer that's been, it says beheaded here. They didn't cut off the thing's head. They just broke its neck. And, and they would wash their hands over the, the carcass of the animal. And they will answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, which actually means be satisfied, Lord. Don't be angry anymore. Be satisfied and cover up this sin. Be merciful, O Lord, unto your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto your people of Israel's charge. The idea of be merciful and cover this sin that's happened in our nation, that we can't figure out who did it. We can't fix it because we can't figure out who did it. It says just, Lord, be be satisfied that we did this and just cover this sin over. Now, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, sin couldn't be removed. It could only be covered. The cross, of course, it removes our sin completely, which is why the new covenant is a better deal than the law. 
It doesn't just cover our sins. It cleanses our sins. It washes us clean. I hate songs that say, you know, you cover our sin because that's unbiblical. Christ doesn't cover our sin anymore. That's the Old Testament. He washes away our sin. Your sin is never covered because that would mean it's still there. It's just covered up. You have parts of our home that we cover up, right? You know, if we have company over, maybe you can't do anything about that blight of a whatever corner. And so you put a nice little, you know, armor in front of it or something, right? Well, that's not how our sin works. Our sin isn't just covered up so God doesn't have to see it because it's ugly. He doesn't see it because it's not there. He's washed us clean. Amen? Second thing I think it's interesting they mentioned here is they say, Lord, be merciful on us. Be satisfied and cover the sin because you have redeemed us. Even though these leaders are innocent, they recognize that they were lost before God found them. They say, we, we were lost. We were redeemed whom you've redeemed from Egypt, whom you have redeemed and lay not this blood under your people of Israel's charge. They go all the way back to Egypt here where we, they were slaves because that's what that word redeem means. It means to purchase from the slave block. We were slaves of Egypt and you purchased our freedom, Lord. You set us free. And that's important because even when we're innocent, we must remain humble because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here we have a people that didn't do anything wrong, but they're saying, Lord, please forgive our sin, cover this sin, and Lord, do this because, Lord, we don't deserve it, but because we need it. Sometimes I think we miss out on all that God has for us because we think he owes us something because we've done our part or we've been faithful and we're the innocent one here. You know, frequently people will say to me, why do I have to do all this extra work? I'm the one who was wronged. No, I'll say to them, well, you need to forgive, you know, and then you need to go and talk to them. And like, why do I have to initiate the conversation? They wronged me because that's what the scripture says. <laughs> See, if, if you're going to be proud and go, well, that's not fair. Well, then let's really talk about what's fair. What's not fair is the cross. What's fair is we don't get a cross. Let me rephrase that. We get a cross. It's just our own. That's what's fair. What's not fair is Jesus on a cross for us. So we can never try to operate in the realm of fair. We need to humble ourselves, even if we might be the innocent party. Jesus, he did all that extra work for us, even though we were the ones that wronged him. We sinned against God, but he made the first move. And it was a big move because it cost him his life. You know, I'd ask you tonight, are, are you being proud about restoring a relationship where you've been wronged by somebody? I would encourage you to start by humbling yourself before the Lord and remembering what he saved you from. When we do that, it changes our perspective into one that sees the value of fixing a relationship, even if you're not the one who broke it, right? It shows you the value of fixing a relationship, even if you're not the one who broke it. When the leaders do this, God promises he'll forgive the nation. The end of verse eight says, and the blood. The phrase their blood, it means the bloodshed, the murder, the person who killed the person. It says, that blood it says, shall be forgiven the nation. So shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. And again, that word forgiven there, it's the same word as merciful. God will be satisfied by this and he will cover their sin and that guilt will be put away. It'll be purged. It'll be removed. God makes it like the violent crime never happened. You might be thinking, okay, but doesn't that stink for the family who lost their loved one? They get no justice now. The criminal gets away with it. Can I tell you something important tonight? No one ever gets away with evil. I realize that maybe they might get away with it in the here and now or just in the present, but no one ever gets away with evil because the Lord never allows anyone to get away with evil. You know, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we see here that no one ever gets away with evil. It says in Revelation 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That's God. And there was no place found for the heaven and the earth anymore. This earth, this atmosphere, this universe, it's all going to go away someday. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. 
And so the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And so death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that's not an exciting passage, but justice will be served. No one will get away with evil. You know, in Psalm 73, I think it's Asaph, he was whining to the Lord. And I I say that because I whine to the Lord all the time. He was whining to the Lord about, you know, the fact that he goes, Lord, I, I look around me, like I try to live for you, try to do the right things, and I struggle. And then I see this wicked man, and he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about others. He does whatever he wants. And you know what? He prospers. He prospers and he's rich and life is good and lives to a good old age and he doesn't even die a bad death. He dies an easy death. You know, you know, and I see righteous people all around me. They live hard lives and they don't even get a long life. And if they do, they die a horrible death. And, and Lord, it just doesn't seem like it pays to serve you. It doesn't seem like it's worth it. And then he says, but then I went into the house of the Lord and I considered the end of the wicked. No one ever gets away with evil. No one. Evil can be forgiven, thank God, right? Otherwise, we'd be in trouble too. But no one ever gets away with it. If they don't ever make it right with God, no one gets away with it. The Lord will judge the world in righteousness. The Bible says it over and over and over again. So no one will get away with it. We don't get away with anything either because Christ paid the price for us. So it's not like we get away scot-free. It's that Christ paid the price and we experience the freedom from that. Now we go down to verse 10 and we deal with laws protecting unloved wives. Unloved husbands, you're on your own. Verse 10. And when you go forth to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God has delivered them into your hands, and you have taken them captive, and you see amongst the captives a beautiful woman, and you have a desire unto her that you would have her to your wife, well, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails, and she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off of her, the clothes that she's wearing when she got captured, and she shall remain in your house and bewail her father and her mother a full month, and after that, you shall go in unto her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. We read this at first glance, and you kind of go, what? <laughs> that doesn't sound right, God. I mean, that sounds pretty rough there. What, what are you talking about here? Well, we have to remember in ancient warfare that women and children, when the men were defeated, when you would come take a city, women and children were often slaughtered, raped, or turned into sex slaves by the victors. God outlawed all of that in Israel's warfare. They were never to do any of that in Israel's warfare. When God described what the Babylonians would do to Israel because he's urging them to repent because he doesn't want to let it happen. He says, they're going to take your kids and they're going to bring them to the top of the city walls and throw them on the ground for fun, your babies. That's what people did back then. Sometimes in modern warfare, it's what they do today. They'll disfigure their enemies, the kids and the women. They still do these things still today. But back then, that was the norm. God outlawed all of that in Israel's warfare. You can't have your way with women. You can't turn them into sex slaves. You can't use them for pleasure. You can't abuse the children. You can't do any of those things. But God did allow a soldier to marry a captured woman if the soldier handled it the right way. Verse 11 says, if you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you have a desire unto her. The phrase there, have a desire, bad translation again. The word here, it means to love, to become attached to. This is not the idea where you see a pretty girl and you get all, your lust gets aroused and you go, I want her. And the Lord's like, well, you can have her as long as you marry her. That's not what God's saying here. The idea here is that as you capture the women and the children, you're not going to leave them there. You're going to bring them back to your cities. You leave them there, they're going to end up fighting them again when the kids get older. We've already covered that in other passages in the law. The idea here is when you capture them, it's not like you just instantaneously get back to town. 
So in the course of the time of the travel, if you become attached to one of these women, you begin to fall in love with them. This is about a soldier who genuinely wants to spend the rest of his life with this woman, not just have some girl he can sleep with on the side. The first condition is that these women actually have rights. That's nuts. In that day, nobody had these laws. Nobody had these rules. Women had no rights, even women in in their own country, let alone captured women, prisoners of war. But they do have rights in God's eyes. So the first condition is that this soldier must genuinely care for her. And if he met that condition, well, then she needed to commit to following the Lord if he was going to marry her. Look at verse 12. Well, then you shall bring her home because she had no home to stay in anymore. A woman would never do that in that society. It was just unheard of. It would be considered scandalous. But in this case, there was no other option. So bring her home, but you don't get to marry her yet. It says, you shall bring her to your house and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. As a Gentile, because it's not talking about warring with Jews, warring with Gentiles. As a Gentile, she would be ritually impure. And these were the cleansing rites. If you go back to Leviticus, you see if someone's unclean, this is what they have to do. They have to take off their old clothes. They have to cut their hair. They have to trim their nails. And they have to be ritually purified. So this is not just an issue of shaming her and whatever. And you leave your people behind. Now you're going to be my wife. You're going to be my property. That's not the idea here. It's that she would be ritually impure as a Gentile. And so she had to go through the cleansing rites that a Jew would have to go to who wanted to come back into society and be able to worship the Lord. So for her to agree to this would be her way of signifying, I'll be your wife. I will follow your God. I will follow the Lord. But again, that's not it. She's going to be a wife, not a slave. So she must be treated respectfully by being allowed to mourn the loss of her family in the war. So you can't even marry her yet when she says, yes, I'll be your wife and I will follow your God. Well, it says here also, she needs to bewail her father and her mother a full month. And then after that, you can go in unto her, be her husband, and she shall be your wife. When we get down here, one other thing we need to mention is that God is not for slavery. God is not for men who mistreat women, and God is not for divorce. He hates all those things. So don't let anyone tell you the Bible teaches that those things are okay. All life is important to God. There is value in all men and women because we are created in the image of God. So when innocent blood is shed and innocent lives are taken advantage of, God is displeased and disgusted. We are to value all life just as God does. That even means people that don't agree with us or that dislike us. If God has been merciful and kind to all of us, we ought to treat one another in the same light. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.